Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. On page 998. We'll go up to verse 33 this morning. And uh, you also, on your way in, you received a uh, handout with an outline on the inside, an outline of the sermon, which might be helpful uh, for either those who are taking notes or for those who want to know where we're up to as we go along. Matthew 23, page 998. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who has uh, spoken to us here. Our Father, we uh, we pray that you give us ears to hear what he has to say, uh, hearts that uh, long to obey you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Jesus was in Jerusalem in the last week before his crucifixion. When he came to Jerusalem at the beginning of the week, the crowds had proclaimed that that he was the promised king, the one that Israel had been waiting for. He came to the temple, as predicted by the Old Testament prophets. But what he found there was not acceptance and submission, but opposition. And leading the opposition were the religious leaders of Israel. Over the past past few weeks, we've been looking at how these religious leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees, have have tried to attack him, asking him questions, trying to trap him. But they've been silenced by him. In his great wisdom, he had turned the tables on them every time, answered their questions, made a teaching point, showed how they're in the wrong. And now, they have nothing left to say. And then in this passage, Jesus moves from the defense to the offense. He moves from responding to their questions to attacking their behavior. And what a blistering attack it is. He starts by attacking their religious oppression. Chapter 23, verse 2. Jesus says to the crowds and his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' feet. So, practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. When they are teaching the Bible, when they are teaching the Old Testament, it is God's Word. They are teaching that God's Word is to be obeyed. But, But these people are not to be imitated because they do not practice what they preach. They claim you should do X, Y, Z, but they they don't actually do it themselves. Because they are able to create exceptions for themselves. Or at least find loopholes for themselves. But you wouldn't know that. And so you think their obedience is perfect. But the common people, the average man on the street, the average woman, the average child, is that, is that feeling like that? not good enough. You can never be as good as these religious leaders. Never live up to their teachings. Never meet their standards. And so they look up to them. And look to them as their, as their mediators, because they're holier, nearer to God. And the religious leaders in turn pile more and more requirements on them. Make them more and more miserable with more and more laws and observances. 
And instead of just passing on God's message faithfully, that they had their own. The Pharisees of Jesus, they had a huge amount of law to the regulations of gospel. In verse 4, Jesus says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay it on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And so people are enslaved to a whole system of law that has nothing to do with the loving design that their creator had for their lives. They're subjected to unbiblical laws while the religious elite safeguarded themselves from it and kept the masses in control in their misery. Laws about the Sabbath are just one example of this heavy burden. Remember, God gave the Sabbath for people to rest. Remember, they were slaves no more. Look forward to the ultimate rest that where they will enjoy like God on the, on the seventh day. But the Pharisees twisted it to something very burdensome, very legalistic. Carry something outside your house that's considered work. But if you hand it through the window to someone, well, that's not work. A loophole. So, at distance, you can walk on a Sabbath day. The Sabbath day walk. Oh, less than that's okay. More than that's work. We still see the phenomena today. The Orthodox Jews are descendants spiritually of the Pharisees, right? After the, uh, uh, of all the different Jewish groups that were around at the time, the, the Pharisees were the ones who, who actually took over in the end. And so, we see that phenomena today. Uh, one of my Old Testament lectures at Moore College told us about the time he went to a synagogue on a Saturday and he, at the end of the meeting, a Jewish man, knowing he was a Christian, asked him very politely, would you please help me by turning off the lights? Because the Jews weren't allowed to do that on the Sabbath. I grew up for our cathedral, went to Israel a few years ago and one of the ladies told me that their hotel in Jerusalem had a special list. They were only for Jews on the Sabbath because Everyone has to use novel lists, but the Jews they use these specialists. And the reason is they was they, they moved up and down constantly and stopped on every floor. So you don't have to press the button. See? If you press the button, that's work. Press the button, it sounds like, but it's stopped on every floor. And go up, and you get there. You use lift. See, when you have legalism, law-keeping as a way of getting right with God, then people make up more and more laws for people to follow. And when you've got a multiplication of rules, a clever mind, and a heart that doesn't really want to obey, then you get loopholes. And religious oppression happens when religious leaders burden people with observances and rituals and prohibitions and laws that do not come from God. And they themselves have the loopholes, exploit them easy, and the common people are trapped. Some of us are doing a uh, module in the uh, correspondence course at the moment in a church history class called the Reformation Church History, and we see some kind, something of that kind of kind of uh, behaviour in, in medieval Catholicism. People are told they'll be in purgatory for, for thousands of years, and they can get out if they pay money to the church. The church was had lost the gospel. It's controlled people by telling them the only way to be saved is through the sacraments, and only we can give you the sacraments wouldn't let people read the Bible for themselves and find out the truth that you're saved by the death of Jesus saved by God's grace through faith and there's only one mediator that's him 
friends, when churches lose the gospel, they end up falling either into legalism or license. License is you can do anything you like, like the Episcopal Church in America. Legalism is you have to obey harder and harder and harder rules to make sure you're okay. Now, they look like opposites, but actually they both come from a denial of the gospel. In other places we see how God hates license, and here we see how he hates legalism. He hates his religious oppression. Seen some cults, seen some religions. We even see it in churches where the gospel is replaced by legalism. Where people are trying to get right with God by doing good works. Or works that their religious leaders tell them are good works. The first characteristic of religion that God hates is gospel denying, legalistic oppression. But the reason why the Jewish religious leaders wouldn't help, wouldn't lift a finger to help these people, is because they weren't really there to serve at all. What they were there for was for self-glorification. And God hates religious self-glorification. Look what Jesus said about them in verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Not doing it for God. Not doing it to be seen by Him. Doing it to be seen by others. And here's the example in the second half of verse 5. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Now, let me explain what phylacteries and fringes are. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18, uh, God uh, has been telling his people to remember his commandments. He says, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. A couple of other passages like that. And he keeps on going about teaching them to the children and wiping them on their door frames, etc. Now, the Jews took this literally and actually made these black leather boxes. Right, containing scrolls of parchment inscribed with biblical verses. Uh, you can see uh, some pictures of that, not so clear. Uh, you see the first and second picture? You see the little black box the man's wearing on his head? That's a phylactery. Okay, it's got words from, from the law in there. And then on the other picture you see actually um, on their arms. Okay, putting it there. And Jews today still do that. They still wear these phylacteries. The other thing it talks about there are fringes. Right? The other word for that is tassels. Uh, and uh, God says in uh, Numbers 15, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels in the corner of your garments with blue cord on each tassel. You have these tassels to look at so that you remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lust of your own heart and eyes. So the, these, tassels, the, these tassels are like those, those little bits hanging down right, from the corner of the, uh, of the garments. Uh, to, to remind people, a little thing there, like, maybe it's like tying a, tying a, uh, a, uh, a string on your finger to remember something, okay? That's it. Tied there. Whenever you look at that, remember to do God's commandments. So, there's nothing wrong with wearing phylacteries or tassels in themselves, is there? God, God, God spoke about these things. Jesus wore a garment with tassels. But notice what the religious leaders did in verses 4 and 5. Verse 5, second half of verse 5. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. See, they make bigger phylacteries than everybody else. 
And they wear longer tassels. Why? To show they're different from everyone else. To show their piety. How holy they are. The phylacteries and tassels are there to help people remember God's commandments. They didn't obey the commandments. They just made bigger phylacteries and longer tassels. Put on a good show. What is it that some people might wear today to make themselves look more holy than everyone else? Could be anything, couldn't it? Could be a fish sticker on the car, a cross on the neck, clerical collar like I'm wearing now, the robes I'll be wearing later, or the bigger, better, shinier costumes you get to wear when you're a senior clergyman, suit and tie you get in some other churches, in some circles even growing a beard. It makes you look more like Jesus, yeah? Whatever. Not intrinsically wrong. I can imagine a, a good, converse, good gospel conversation coming out of the fish on your car. Right? So then, I'm just going to take it off just because I mentioned that as an example. But the question is, why do you do it? Why do we do any of those things? If it gives us more gospel opportunities, that's a great motivation. I'll wear a dozen crosses, any color robes, and three-piece suit while driving a fish. It would take that to promote the gospel. The only thing I can't do is grow a beard. But brothers and sisters, if we're doing any of those things or more to appear more important or more religious or to be looked up to by people around us, then we are becoming like Pharisees and scratch. We need to be careful. You see, the Pharisees and scribes were using religion to gain honor for themselves. Verse 6 says, they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greeting to the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Ever had a church leader like that? Now, one will be upset if you don't put him on the VIP list or VIP table at the weddings or at church events. He'll be upset when you have a big service at the cathedral and he doesn't get one of those seats that's at the front and 90 degrees to everyone else. He'll be upset if you don't call him pastor or padre or your grace or whatever title his job is. And if you haven't, lucky you. Because Pharisaism is alive and well in the church of Jesus Christ. There's not anyone here that's not become like that, alright? We're here to serve the Lord Jesus. We're here to serve each other. We're not here to feed our ego. Jesus told us how to operate in his church. Verse 8 and 9. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now, friends, I didn't say that. Jesus said it. Jesus doesn't want each other, doesn't want us to go around calling each other by titles in church. That's what he said. And you know what we've done? We've multiplied titles. People call me Reverend Andrew Cheer. I mean, those who know me well will know there's not in any way worthy to be revered. If you don't know me well, you'd ask my wife, she'll tell you. It's just a title, and the church is full of them. We have reverends and very reverends and right reverends and most reverends and reverend canons and venerable canons and 
we climb up the title ladder and insisting people pay the proper homage that goes with it. And what does Jesus say? It's not just us Anglicans, other churches do it too. Leaders insist on being called pastor so-and-so or elder so-and-so or father so-and-so. Just pick and choose depending on your tradition. Jesus says, you're not to be called rabbi. Call no man your father on earth. You're not to be called instructors. You have one instructor. You have one teacher. You have one father. So friends, please do call me by my name. Right? Most of you do, I know. Uh, a few people who have been brought up differently find it hard. I know it's not easy. But the reason I tell you to do that is not just out of a false modesty. I don't want to fall in this trap. So you need to help me guard against pride. You need to help me guard against Pharisee self-fabrication. Always temptation for those in, in leadership. You've got to help me. Right. Call me Andrew. And if you really, really, really can't bring yourself to call my name, then you call me brother. Okay, so that's our primary relationship, isn't it? I won't be your, I won't be your pastor forever. I hope I'll be a pastor for a very long time. Right. But in a hundred years from now, I won't be a pastor. But if you and I belong to Jesus, then for all eternity, I will be your brother. If you want to call me something, call me that. But don't get me wrong. Dropping titles doesn't mean we don't have leadership. The Bible often talks about leadership. But you don't have to have titles to have leadership. One of the things I really respect about Jason, our dean, is he doesn't insist on being called very reverend. He says, call me Jason. Even our bishop at his consecration said we can call him Munhing. I don't respect them less for that. I respect them more. Godly leadership doesn't need titles. Godly leadership doesn't need people to call them special names in order to lead properly. Godly leadership is about serving God's people. It's about hearing, applying the word of God. Now that kind of godly leadership is to be honored. Hebrews 13, 17 Obey your leaders, submit to them because they are keeping a watch over your souls as those who have to give account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for they would be of no advantage to you. Yes, we have to respect our leaders and obey them in the Lord. But leadership is not about accumulating titles and seeking honor. Jesus says in verse 11, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humble. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See friends, there is a time when God will judge. And God will decide who is important and who is not. Who is really pious and who is not? Who will be honoured and, and who won't be? And brothers and sisters, that is the only judgment that counts. How do you think the Pharisees and the scribes will face that judgment? How do we know? Well, we'll know by reading on, but let me explain. Let me give you an illustration. That there are some people who will bet on anything. Right? Not just horses and World Cup matches. If there's a war, bookies will make big odds. If there are elections, they'll be there. Okay? They even bet on the weather. Right? 
uh, you know the recent Pramatang Pao by-election? Uh, bookies were there. One illegal bookie apparently collected two million ringgit in bets. You want to know what the, they were giving? Three to one that Anwar win, would win with a 15,000 majority, and five to one that he'd win with a 20,000 majority. Now, if you were to illegally bet on the result of a trial, like people did, like in the O.J. Simpson trial. Remember the O.J. Simpson trial? Yeah, okay. Uh, you'd be taking a chance, wouldn't you? Because you wouldn't know what the outcome would be. But what if the judge told you? What if the judge said, this person is guilty and is going to jail? Then, then you'd be pretty certain, wouldn't you? Now, of course, it's Christian if you don't go into this kind of thing. I mean, illegal gambling with insider information from judges. It's a terrible illustration, really. But what do you think the odds were that the Pharisees faced? What kind of future would, you, would they have on the Day of Judgment? Well, we know because the judge himself has told us, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus pronounces God's judgment in advance on these religious leaders. And he does it in what we call, call seven woes. Right? There's seven, seven little paragraphs that each start with, Woe to you! How awful will it be for you? How distressing for you? How dreadful is the coming punishment that you'll face? Because the religion you practice is religion I hate. Have a look at those seven words. The first word is for blocking entry into the kingdom. Verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. The scribes and Pharisees, they would not enter the kingdom. They wouldn't turn to Jesus as their king. They wouldn't recognize him as God who has come to save his people. Not only did they refuse to enter, though, they tried to stop others from, from entering as well. They worked hard to discourage the ordinary people, people who didn't know the Old Testament like they did, people who they looked down on from, as being less religious and less pious and, and therefore looked up to them for leadership. They tried to stop them from coming to Jesus. They didn't just spoil it for themselves. They spoiled it for others whom they were meant to lead. And spiritual leadership is a very, very big responsibility, isn't it? Whether it's in the congregation, in the family, in the cell group, in the youth group, in the Sunday school class. If you're a leader of any sort, make sure you're in the kingdom. That you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior, relying on Him as your King. And that you are leading the people who follow you, not to yourself, but to Him. The second woe is about hellish discipleship. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Our smack tagline is not making disciples. Our tagline is, Making Disciples of Jesus Christ. Right? There's a big difference. Our job is to point people to Jesus. To grow together in being like Him. The scribes and the Pharisees made disciples, but they made disciples like themselves. 
And they made them religious. But in a false religion, in a distortion of Old Testament revelation. Friends, it's not enough to be religious. Whether it be Judaism, or Islam, or Buddhism, or Hinduism, or even churchianity. Being religious, and making other people religious, will do you no good. You have to be not in the church, but in the kingdom. You need Jesus as your king. And we need to make disciples of Jesus. The third world is about legalistic nonsense. Right, verses 16 to 22. Woe to you blind guides, if anyone who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. That's silly, isn't it? Swearing falsely is okay if you swear by the right things falsely. I mean, that's just ridiculous. And even if they did, they got it all wrong anyway. The priorities. Look, you blind fools, Jesus continues. From which is greater? The gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by oath. You blind men. From which is greater? The gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? It's just the way they do their swearing shows their priorities. Their values are upside down. The gold is five more value than the temple. The gift is more gravity than the altar. That's not how God sees it. While they're trying to minimize obedience to their vows, God is trying to maximize faithfulness. So Jesus says in verse 20 onwards, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You make a vow and you're invoking God, whatever you swear by. To claim otherwise is just legalistic nonsense to try and squirm your way out of doing the right thing. And God hates the kind of legalism that gives you loopholes so you don't have to do the right thing. next thing God hates here is legalism that blinds the real issues of godliness. And Jesus pronounced a woe against it, against the scribes and the Pharisees who indulge it in verse 23 onwards. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglected the weightiest matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. See, the Old Testament does say that you should tithe whenever you grow. Uh, Leviticus chapter 27 verse 30, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to God. Now, Jesus said, look, these scribes and Pharisees, they were so meticulous about keeping this law, they didn't just tithe the harvest or the fruit, even the herbs in the garden, the, the mint and dill and cumin, they tithe. Don't, don't ask me how you, what you did with 10% of the mint you picked for your cooking. Right? But they did. Now, Jesus didn't tell them off for tithing. They're under the old covenant where tithing is, com- is commanded. He says, these you should have done without neglecting the other. Without neglecting the weightier things of the law. Without neglecting the far, far more important things. Things like justice 
being fair to other people, things like mercy, being compassionate to those in need, things like faithfulness, keeping their promises to God and others, things that are far more important than picking out 10% of your herbs. But those things were ignored. Jesus pictures it quite comically in verse 24 as straining out a net and swallowing a camel. You see, gnats and small insects were, were unclean. So what they would do is they, they'd strain the wine to make sure they didn't accidentally swallow them. Right. But a camel is also unclean. And so you've got this picture of Jesus gives us straining out the tiny insects and then swallowing the whole camel in the cup. Right? It's, it's a ridiculous picture. They say, look, this is what they're doing. They're so meticulous in, in keeping that tithing law and yet with far more important issues of justice and faithfulness and, and, and mercy, they, they don't do it. Remember our Old Testament reading for today? Micah 6 verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Those are the weighty things of the law. Those are the real marks of godliness. And God hates the kind of legalism that blinds people to them. In the fifth world, Jesus slams the scribes and Pharisees for their emphasis on, on ritual cleanness that's combined with a heart filthiness. So just imagine you came to my house and I served you a drink of water in a cup that I had just washed. And it's sparkling and clean on the outside, but I didn't actually wash the inside. It's filthy on the inside. It's growing mold. It's growing like a drain. Right. Now, this is how Jesus pictures the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse, uh, verse 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. They carefully did all the ritual washings they had to do by law. Wash themselves on the outside to make sure they're not, not ritually unclean. But all along their hearts were filthy. Full of greed or whether it could be robbery. Taking money that's not theirs. Self-indulgence. The opposite of self-control. He says to them in verse 26, You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate but the outside might also be clean. And then it speaks about hypocrisy, verse 27-28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Whitewashed here means, literally, it's, it's plastered with lime. It could have been painting a picture of the, one, of the, you know, one of the big tombs that they plastered with lime or whitewashed. Uh, from time to time, but some commentators have pointed out that they weren't actually really beautiful. And it's more likely he's referring to funeral, funeral urns or ossuaries. After people had been buried for a year or so at the time, their bones were often trans transferred into these boxes, these ossuaries. Uh, boxes, uh, which could sometimes be quite beautifully decorated. And, that, and it's done by plastering the boxes with lines, see. So they look clean and pretty on the outside. But inside, they're unclean. It's actually full of human dead bones. By the way, the effect is the same. Nice on the outside, 
unclean on the inside. And so Jesus says in verse 28, So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, within, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They give a picture to the world of holiness and righteousness. But really it's all pretense. The hearts were dirty and unclean. They didn't really seek to obey God's law. They sought to appear to obey God's law. They didn't really want to be righteous. They wanted to appear righteous. It looks so good on the outside. But Jesus looks into their hearts. And within them is hypocrisy and lawlessness. The final word that Jesus pronounces against the scribes and the Pharisees is but nothing less than murder. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived our day, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fast. In the Jews of Jesus, they were just like their ancestors who murdered the prophets. They condemned their ancestors for doing it. They had beautiful tombs for the ones who were dead, but they were actually just about to do the same thing. They would do it to Jesus. They would do it to the ones he sent. So, they're not only biological sons of their fathers, they, they share in their nature. They share in their deeds. And so the judge speaks. And here's the verdict in verse 33. You serpents. You brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? It's a hard word, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day, they were oppressive and self-seeking. Hypocritical, legalistic, but not setting out on the important things. When God came to save his people, they rejected his kingdom and prevented people from entering it. And worst of all, they plotted, plotted and schemed to kill their king. But it's not just the Jews who are like this. So-called Christians often act in similar ways. At an institutional level and at local ones. And so the woes that Jesus pronounced and the scribes and the Pharisees are also warnings that he gives to us. Do not be like them. Church leaders who follow in the footsteps of the Pharisees and scribes can expect Jesus to denounce them as well. It is bad enough to be blind. It is even worse to be a blind guide because you're leading others astray. Brothers and sisters, let us never promote church leadership that is oppressive, self-seeking, hypocritical, or legalistic. 
And let's look in our hearts for any evidence of these things and seek to turn away from it. Let's not walk along that road. Let's not make the opposite error either, assuming that every church leader is like this and all Christians are hypocrites and just running away. I don't run away from the kingdom just because people who claim to speak for it really don't. So let's look to Jesus. Seek leaders like him and seek to be like him ourselves. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees failed to practice what they preached. But Jesus did. He told us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And he practiced that. He showed his love to his Father and his obedience, which, which ultimately led to the cross. He showed his love to us by going to the cross to die for our salvation. Jesus practiced what he preached. The scribes and the Pharisees burdened people with legalism, didn't lift a finger to help them. Jesus took our burdens on himself on the cross. He bore our sin on our behalf so that we could be forgiven and freed from, from the law as a means of getting right with God. He gave us his spirit to change us on the inside and make us want to obey. The scribes and the Pharisees tried to stop people from entering the kingdom. Jesus died and rose again to open the kingdom of heaven to all believers. The scribes and the Pharisees made disciples who were sons of hell. Those who follow Jesus as his disciples are children of the kingdom. The scribes and the Pharisees were full of legalistic loopholes and nonsense. Jesus taught his disciples to obey the spirit of the law, not just the letter. The scribes and Pharisees had hearts that were far from God, hearts that were filthy and unclean. Jesus is the only one who ever was truly pure in heart. And by his blood, his death, he can cleanse us and give us clean hearts as well. The scribes and the Pharisees took the lives of God's people. Jesus gave us eternal life. Jesus said back in verse 11, The greatest among you shall be your servant. And he was. He served us to death by dying for us. He said in verse 12, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus humbled himself. Though by nature God, he became a servant, was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Brothers and sisters, He is the one we are to follow. Jesus is the one we are to serve. He is the one we are to imitate. And let us pray that God will deliver us from false leaders and from their example. Enable us to become more and more like Him. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we know your son has strongly condemned hypocrisy and legalism and all those things that self-glorification and all those things that the Pharisees and scribes were, were so involved in. Our Father, we we pray that as people who belong to Him, as people who have entered His kingdom, as people who have been forgiven by Him and, and washed clean by His blood, it would be people who would turn away from all those things as well. Father, you know our hearts. And you know how impure we are. And yet we, we call upon you for mercy. And we look to the blood of your Son who is shed for us for forgiveness and life. Preserve us, we pray. Keep us from from all these sins. Teach us and mold us and change us by your Spirit. That we would become more and more like Jesus. That we would seek the glory that only comes from you and not from each other. That we would be willing to serve each other that we would love you from the heart and therefore seek to obey you from the heart and not from legalism and loopholes. Please, Father, would you work among us and keep us from falling into religiosity and keep us following Jesus and living as people of the kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.